let's open our Bibles together to the book of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we return to our study of this wonderful letter. And we are picking up where we left off last time, just a few weeks ago. We are ready for verse 19. And so, as you are able, please stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. As we read together from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, hear now the word of the Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, your inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your people. We thank you, Lord, that by your spirit working through your word, You accomplish the miraculous, even calling to life that which is dead, even giving sight to blind eyes and hearing to deaf ears, even transforming us into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that you would accomplish all your good purposes by your spirit, through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you are a Christian, God's desire for you is that you would be more like Christ, that you would become more like him. That is his aim. That is the aim that we have as well. That is our aim as a church. And and no goal is more important than that goal. In fact, you could achieve every goal you've set for yourself in this world, every measure of worldly success. But if you fail at becoming more like Christ, then you have failed in this life. No matter what you've achieved, no matter how other people look at you. Because again, God's aim for you, God's design for you is that you would become more like Christ. However... To become more like Christ is impossible for us on our own. It is impossible for us without God's help. Left to our own, if it were up to us, we would not pursue Christ's likeness. Left to our own, we would only pursue selfishness. We would only pursue our own sinful desires. But thankfully, God has not left us on our own. He, he helps us to become what he has called us to become. And, and one of the ways that he does that, one of the ways that God helps us to become more like Christ is through trials. God uses the means of trials as, as the instrument by which he makes us more like Jesus. That's what James has been telling us so far in this first chapter. It's been a few weeks since we've been in James, so let me refresh your memory. In verses 2 to 4, if you look there, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
Nothing. Notice here, the God-given purpose of our trials is that we would be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. In, In other words, our trials are meant for us by God to bring about full maturity. God uses trials in our lives to grow us. In trials, your faith is tested. Your faith is purified. Your faith is made stronger. You are made more steadfast. If you endure trials and resist temptations, you'll grow to be more like Christ. And so trials are an essential way that God grows us. It's important for us to remember that truth. As we have looked in these early verses of James, we are reminded of something that should be of great comfort and encouragement to us. If God, Christian, has brought a trial into your life, that is an act of his grace. It's an act of his kindness. He is not being unkind to you. He has not forgotten you. He's at work. He's at work for your eternal good. He's at work for your eternal joy. That, that trial... That trial that you have walked through or are walking through right now, that that thing that hurts, that thing that's so hard, that thing that feels so overwhelming and is so difficult for you to understand is actually an act of his mercy. It is actually an act of his love. He has brought that trial into your life so that you'd grow and so that you'd mature and so that you'd be more like his son. There's great comfort in this truth. But enduring trial is not the only way that God grows us. God also uses his word to mature us. His word teaches us what it is that we're to believe. His word teaches us what we're to think. His word teaches us how it is that we're to behave and live. It's effective to bring about change in our lives by his spirit working through his word. As we pray each Sunday morning, we pray that God would transform us. And that's exactly what he does. He changes us from the inside out. He changes our hearts. He renews our minds. He even changes our desires. It makes perfect sense that the word of God would would grow us in that way because it's by the word of God that God has saved us, that he has given to us spiritual life in the first place. James wrote that truth in verse 18 of chapter 1. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Even though we were spiritually dead, even though we were in rebellion and, and dead in sin, God brought us forth. He he birthed us. He made us alive. And he did that, James says, by the word of truth. That's a reference we saw a couple weeks ago to the gospel. It's by the gospel that God has made us alive. The word of God can, can raise the dead to life. And that's what he has done, Christian, in you. That's what he's done in me. God's word is powerful. That's physically demonstrated in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. What does Jesus do? With just the power of his voice, he calls to Lazarus. Lazarus who's been dead. Lazarus who's been in the tomb for four days. Lazarus who can't do a single thing but lay there being dead just like he's been. Jesus commands him, come out. And Lazarus came out. That wasn't because he was only mostly dead. He was all the way dead. 
It wasn't because he had the power to respond within himself. He didn't have the power to respond within himself. It was because the power is in God's call. The power to bring the dead to life is in the voice of God. And Lazarus is just a picture of what's true for each one of us spiritually. God uses the means of his word to bring us from death into life, to make us a new creation. The word of God not only makes us new, it not only causes us to live, but it also does a continual work in us, a continual transforming work. His word sanctifies us. It just means that it transforms us into the likeness of Christ. It matures us. It grows us. Through his word, our lives are shaped and conformed to God's will. And we grow. We grow in maturity. We grow in Christ-likeness. And so it's, it's, it's through both trials and his word that God matures his people. That's what James is showing us in the first chapter of this letter. Verses 2 through 18, we learn that God grows us through trials. Verses 19 through 27, we learn that God grows us through his word. Two means, two instruments in the hand of God, growing us to become more like Christ. These two means, trials and his word. And in this letter, James not only shows us how we grow, he instructs us on what that ought to look like, what it looks like to grow up, what it looks like to mature. In fact, this whole letter of James is really, it's an essay on what true Christian maturity really looks like. How do Christians act? How do Christians think? Like no other book in the New Testament, James just gets into our personal spaces. Like we said the the first week we began our study, James is, is one of those house guests that's not content to stay in the kitchen and the living room. He's getting into everything. He's opening every door. He's looking in every drawer of our lives. And he instructs us on how we ought to live. And so this book is really a mirror for us. It shows us what we're really like. You might think you're mature and then you read the book of James. And James holds a mirror up in front of you and shows you yourself as you truly are. And so we look at James to know what the mature Christian looks like. And that's what he's doing in our passage today. Verses 19 through 21. Let's read them again. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. James wants us to know something. Know this, my beloved brothers. What we're to know are the commands that we see in these verses, verses 19 through 21. James is challenging us in this passage to live as mature believers in relation to God's word and God's people. Well, what he's going to show us here is something that's vital for us to understand, and that is this. The way we relate to God's word is going to impact the way we relate to God's people. 
The way we relate to the word of God will, will influence the way we relate to the people of God. There's a direct correlation here between your receptivity to the word of God and your treatment of God's people. James is going to show us that in this passage. We're just going to be able to scratch the surface of of all that's here. But I want you to see in verse 19, see, see these three commands he begins with. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Notice these commands just stated absolutely. No qualifiers, seemingly without explanation, just, just raw, universal commands. Three short, simple, everyone can understand them commands that James says every person is to put into practice. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 19 functions like a topic sentence for, for the rest of the chapter. It's a summary of his instructions, and he's going to develop now these simple statements as, as he goes forward from here in verses 20 through 27. But notice the first command, verse 19, be quick to hear, is expanded upon in verses 20 through 25. Verse 22, he warns us we must be doers of the word, not hearers only. In other words, we must be hearers of the word, but we shouldn't stop with simply hearing the word. We shouldn't stop with simply reading, hearing, understanding what the word says. We should also be doers of the word. In fact, to be a true hearer of the word, one must be a doer of the word. Likewise, the second command in verse 19, being slow to speak, is picked up in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 warns... That the one who does not bridle his tongue, that's, that's a slowness to speak. That's a self-control. He says the one who, who's not slow to speak, the one who does not bridle his tongue is deceived in his heart. If you can't control your mouth, James says, if you can't be slow to speak, your religion is worthless. That's James's words to us. Similarly, the third command in verse 19, being slow to anger, is addressed in verses 20 and 21, as we'll see this morning. Verse 20, he warns, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we must be slow to anger. So it's really the, the broader context that helps us to understand what James is getting at with these three short, simple commands in verse 19. What, what does it mean to be quick to hear? Well, it means to be quick to hear the word of God, to be a doer of the word of God. That's what the context shows us. Now, we, we all have taught our children, you've got two ears and one mouth and you should act accordingly. We want them to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And this is true advice. We ought to listen to one another. We ought to be eager, more eager to hear from one another than we are to speak to one another. But... James is talking about a specific thing here, and the context shows us that. Be quick to hear the word of God. Be a doer, an immediate doer of the word of God. It's the word of God that's the subject of this entire section. In verse 18, he calls it the word of truth that, that gives birth in us of new spiritual life. In verse 21, it's the implanted word that we must receive with meekness. In verse 22, we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so in verse 19, as he begins this section, 
He's telling us to be quick to hear and specifically to be quick to hear the word of God. To be quick to hear the word of God. To be quick is to be eager, to be ready, to take up the word of God without delay. Have you ever been around somebody and it was like everybody hung on their every word? Everybody just leaned in a little bit closer when they spoke. They wanted to to hear everything this person had to say. They wanted to, to drink it in. That's how we should approach the word of God. We, 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 we come to the word of God, we take it up to read it, or we, we hear it read. However it is, we come to the word of God, and in our hearts we're saying, speak. Speak, God, I'm listening. But my heart is ready to receive your word. This is like nothing else. This is like no other word I could receive. Speak. What about the slowness of speech? What, what does that mean? Well, it means we ought to be careful how we speak because a lack of restraints leads to sin and often gets us in trouble. Verse 26, James is going to say this. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. How big a deal is it when we spout off? Apparently, it's a big deal. Apparently, God does not approach things as casually as we do, where we go, I just need to, I, this is what I'm like. I let it out. I just got to go off sometimes. Apparently, God's not so flippant about this as we are. You're self-deceived and your religion is worthless. How often has your mouth gotten you in trouble because you were quick to speak? And if you had just paused, if you would just have held your tongue, you would have saved yourself and your hearers a lot of pain. How many times have you had to dig yourself out of a situation because you just went off? And he says we're to be slow to anger. What does he mean here in context? Well, we ought to do the very opposite thing that anger, anger usually does. Anger tends to burn hot and fast. Even if we get angry for righteous reasons, we ought to develop that anger cautiously. Slowly. In in, in verse 20, he expands on the reason why we ought to be slow to anger. We ought to be slow to anger, he says, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger. Anger is the word that is most often used in Scripture to describe the wrath of God. This fiery, hot, raging inferno. Of fury that God has, which is righteous and holy and just and true and good. But in contrast to God's wrath, it can also describe the hot tempered, irrational, sinful fury of man. Anger is a most dangerous emotion. It does not tend to produce in us righteous behavior, does it? It does not tend to produce in us righteous thinking. It tends to produce unrighteousness. And the Bible has a lot to say about anger, especially in the book of Proverbs. James probably has Proverbs in mind as he writes this because we see these parallels in a number of places there between our speech and anger. I'll highlight just a couple of them. Proverbs 15 verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's a connection 
And you need to hear this. There's a connection between how you speak and how others will respond. Those two things go together. I think if I could do away with one little two-word phrase from the English language in our world, in our Christian conversation today, I would throw away the words tone police. Every time somebody spouts off and speaks angrily and harshly to someone, and anyone calls them out on it, they go, here come the tone police. As if, as long as we're saying something true, we can be as big a jerks as we want to be about it. No, listen to what it says here. There's a connection between how you speak, your tone, and how others will respond. You can speak in such a way that is harsh and all you're accomplishing, and it doesn't matter how true your words are, all you are accomplishing is stirring up anger in the other person. They're not hearing your words for your tone. And it doesn't matter that what you're saying is true because the way you're saying it is undermining the truth that you are speaking. Rashness begets anger. And anger does not beget peace. It does not, it does not bring forth peace and understanding. Proverbs 15 verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Again, anger begets anger. Harshness only stirs up strife and contention and anger. The Proverbs says, but he who is slow to anger, that's the same words James uses, he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The one who is slow to anger, the one who is gracious in speech and attitude tends to produce peace. Proverbs 29, verse 11, the fool gives full vent to his spirit. That is his his anger, his feelings. But a wise man quietly holds it back. We often hear this in our culture. You just need to vent sometimes. You just need to let it out. Let, Let your feelings out. Blow off some steam. It's good for you to do that, they will tell you. But God's word says this, you're a fool if you do. It's the fool who vents. The fool gives full vent to his spirit. The fool unleashes his anger, but a wise man quietly holds it back. In other words, he's slow to speak. And because he's slow to speak, he's slow to anger. Those two things go together. Proverbs 29, verse 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than him. To to be hasty is to be quick to speak. That's foolish. It's clear why just two verses later in verse 22, he says, a man of wrath stirs up strife. One given to anger causes much transgression. That last line sounds a lot like James 1.20. The proverb says, one given to anger causes much transgression. James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, so James is, is just reiterating for us ancient truth. God's truth about anger. Because of how destructive anger is, we ought to be very careful with it. We need to be slow to anger. But to be sure, not all anger is sinful anger. Not all anger leads to unrighteousness. We know this for several reasons. One is, James says, be slow to anger. He doesn't say, be never angry. Never get angry. Never be angry about anything. That's not what James says. 
Second, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there is a limit to anger. But in some cases, anger is proper. Anger is necessary. Anger is even commanded. We can know for sure that, that not all anger is sinful because God never sins. The scripture says God's filled with wrath. Filled with anger. His, his wrath is fixed on unrighteousness. It is fixed on rebellion and sin. But Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge. What does it mean for God to be a righteous judge? The psalmist tells us what it means. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. As a righteous judge, God is angry all the time at sin. So there's a kind of anger that's righteous. But anger is deceptive. And and here's where the problem lies. We can very easily believe that our anger is righteous when it isn't. Anger is usually a response to, a reaction to, a perceived injustice. That's where anger comes from. You perceive an injustice of some kind and you respond to that with anger, with with a kind of rage. Whether it's a, a simmering rage or whether it's a boiling vent, whatever it is. But anger is a reaction to a perceived injustice. And when that perceived injustice is against us, we must be very careful. We must be very slow to anger because anger is deceptive. We could easily believe that our anger is justified when it isn't. You you might get angry because something didn't go your way. You feel a perceived injustice has been done. Why is this line so long? We shouldn't have to say, what is going on here with Walmart? And they don't even have real people at the checkout lines anymore. Where's it coming? Well, what, what injustice has occurred to you? Well, you're very important. That's what's happened. You shouldn't have to deal with this. A perceived injustice against your preferences. A perceived injustice against how important you are. A perceived injustice against how you want things to go. And so you get angry. We must be very slow to anger in these situations. Because it's very likely when it's a perceived injustice against you that you are reacting with sinful anger, perhaps out of selfishness and not righteous indignation that that, that accords with godliness. Now, on the other hand, when the perceived injustice is against others, then you might be righteously angered. When the unborn are slaughtered, it should make you angry. There ought to be something in your soul that is righteously indignant when this is, when this is promoted. When, when you see children being corrupted and abused and, and targeted with the wicked actions and wicked ideologies of wicked people, there ought to be something in your soul that rises up with anger because that's how God responds to it too. His anger is fixed on those things. He hates those things with a burning hatred. With a righteous anger. When somebody goes to a school and shoots children. It shouldn't just break your heart. It should make you angry. Because God's angry too. But still. We're called to be slow to anger. Because anger is deceptive. And we are not God. 
which means we can take even righteous anger and go places with it we should not go. We're not God. All the more reason to be slow to anger. And to one degree or another, every one of us struggles with these three simple commands in verse 19. Naturally, we are not quick to hear. We're slow to hear. Naturally, we are not slow to speak. We're quick to speak. Naturally, we are not slow to anger. We're quick to anger. So how does one become the kind of person that James is describing here? The kind of person that that we're being commanded to be. He's describing a mature Christian. one, One who is quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. These things mark the mature Christian. So how do we become that kind of mature Christian? How do you grow in these commands and become mature? The answer he gives to us is in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. The the key command in our passage, it's not these three commands in verse 19. It's actually the command right here in verse 21. There's one main verb here in 21. It's the word receive. Receive. It's the word for for welcome. We we ought to welcome. We ought to eagerly accept what James calls the implanted word. What's the implanted word? Well, it's just as it sounds. Implanted is a word for planting a seed in the ground. And so James is picturing the word of God as a seed, which has been planted in your soul and taken root. It sounds like he might have been listening to his brother. It sounds like he might have been listening to Jesus teach. Doesn't it sound like the parable of the soils, which James probably heard more than once? Some version of this that we read in Matthew 13, verse 3. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So, So the seed that's scattered is the seed of the gospel, and it came to certain hearts. That's that's the soils. Jesus explains that that there are four kinds of soil. But for our purposes, we'll just focus on this last one. The seeds that fell on good soil and produced grain. Brothers and sisters, that's what God has done for us. That's what God has done in us who are saved. The gospel has come. This implanted word has come. And according to verse 18, it has given us spiritual life. And this implanted word, which verse 21 tells us is able to save your souls, is this word of truth. And so just as the gospel has called us to be born again, to be born to a new spiritual life, it now remains in us and produces a harvest, a harvest of righteousness. When God regenerates us by his word, when he makes us alive, he also implants his word in us. And that word grows and grows and grows. This word to guide us, to instruct us. He writes his law on our hearts. That's what's promised in the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. I will put my law in them. 
I will write it on their hearts. Not, not on external tablets of stone. Write it in our hearts so that, that we have new desires. To desire that which, which God has called us to. In salvation, we're given a new heart. We're given a renewed mind. We're, giving, we're given new desires to desire what God desires. Our conscience is, a, is awakened to what God wants through this implanted word. But we, we need to continually receive God's word from Scripture to, to feed and to nourish our souls. That is, we must, as James says, receive the implanted word with meekness. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need bread, we need food to live, yes. But we need much more than that. We need far more than that for our spiritual life. We must live by what comes from the mouth of God. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, a passage you all know very well, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the word of God effectively brings about maturity in the Christian's life. That's exactly what James is talking about here in James chapter 1. John MacArthur says this in his commentary on this passage. It's, it's the divine power behind the truth of Scripture that is able to initiate salvation, to keep it alive and growing, and finally to bring it to final glory, complete and perfect. We have been saved, justified through the power of the Word of God. We are kept saved, sanctified through the power of the Word. And we will ultimately, completely, and eternally be saved, glorified through the power of the word of God. And so James says to us, we need to welcome this word into our hearts. This implanted word that God has put into our hearts needs to be continually received as we take this external word of scripture and hide it in our hearts. The spirit with which we are supposed to do this, James says, is with meekness. Receive with meekness the implanted word. In this context, the word meekness means with readiness. It's an eagerness to learn, an eagerness to accept it. To to receive the word with eagerness and with meekness is to receive the word with no exceptions, with no doubts, with no excuses, with no arguments. It's to receive the word with a willingness to obey the word. Another way of saying that is to be quick to hear. <coughs> that, that necessarily means something. It, it means this. If we are to approach God's word in this fashion, it means that we'll also be willing to do something alongside that. Not, not only to receive God's word, but also to cast off any unrighteousness that we've held on to. Again, verse 21 says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This imagery James uses in this statement is, is stark. Put, put away is the language used for removing dirty clothing. Take off the filthy clothes. 
This word filthy is, is a noun that's only used here in the New Testament, but, but there's an adjective that James uses later that's related to it. In James chapter 2, verse 2, he refers to the shabby clothing of the poor. That's just, that's, it's, it's connected to this word filthiness. The, the unwashed, filthy, smelly clothing of the poor in the first century. And then he says, rampant wickedness. Rampant. It's an abundance. It's everywhere you look. Sinful desires. Moral evil. Corruption. These things that remain in our flesh and, and overflow into all aspects of our lives, creating for us many problems, much suffering. These are the dirty clothes of filthiness and rampant wickedness. And so these, these, these dirty clothes of filthiness and rampant wickedness that, that remain in our flesh, they cannot be cleansed. It's like for those of you that have, have gone on a trip to Salome Missionary Homes and Tom, because he cares about you, always tells you, bring clothes that you can part with at the end of this trip because the red clay is going to stain them irrevocably. That stain's not coming out after working out there, you know, a 10-hour day in the red clay. Stains there permanently. Well, these dirty clothes of filthiness and rampant wickedness, they can't be cleansed. That stain, that stink, it's not coming out. They've got to be thrown out. They've got to be discarded. How do we discard them? We do it through repentance. Through through repentance, we we must actively root out sin in our lives and turn from it as we eagerly receive God's word. And so that's the rhythm of the mature spiritual Christian life. The, the habit of our lives is to be to put off unrighteousness and to take in God's word. If that's what you do, if, if you receive the word of God with eagerness, with a readiness to obey the Lord. And if you cast off sin regularly through confession and repentance, then you will be transformed to be more like the Lord in holiness and righteousness. Conform to the image of Christ in maturity. In the words of Romans 12 too, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You'll be able to discern the will of God because you will know the word of God. You'll have taken in the word of God that that will inform everything about how you live your life. That will inform all of your choices. And over time, as God transforms you by his spirit, through his word, as he matures you, your life is going to be characterized by these things that James commands in verse 19. Quickness to hear, slowness to speak, slowness to anger. These qualities will mark your maturity in Christ. These qualities will be manifested in you and you'll grow in all of them. They're all interconnected. This isn't a pick or choose. I listen pretty good. Also very quick to anger. Uh, No, that's not how this works. They grow up together in a person. They're connected to one another. As as I said at the beginning of this message, how we relate to God's word impacts the way we relate to God's people. If you're quick to hear God's word, you'll be slow to speak, and especially slow to speak in anger. 
How you relate to God's word by taking it in will impact your relationships, how you speak to one another, how you communicate, how you relate to one another emotionally, the grace with which you consider one another. On the other hand, if you don't take in the word, you'll do just the opposite. Being of slowness to receive the word, you'll be quick-tempered. You'll speak rashly. You'll lack grace in your consideration of others. And so often we want to we be a victim. And we want to look at other people and assume to them negative motives because it feels good for us to be on the victimized side. It feels good for us to have victimizers. The truth is, <coughs> what we're often doing in that case is sinning against the person by ascribing to them sinful motives. Why did that person didn't even speak to me this morning? They obviously have got an issue with me. No, they don't obviously have an issue with you. You're sinning by judging them in your heart. That's what you're doing. How does that happen to us? How do we get into those kind of patterns of thinking? It's by not doing what James tells us to do here. Cast off. Filthiness and rampant wickedness and take in the word of God. And as we do that, our level of grace for other people goes up and up and up and up and up. And all of a sudden, we're not assuming the worst of everybody. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to be in a place where everyone just assumed the best of each other? Now, I'll tell you this. We can do that. Like, we could all just decide to do that. And I think that would be... A marvelous testimony. Something, something like they'll know you're Christians by the way you love one another, I think, is how that goes. What a blessing that would be. How do we do it? Take in the word. Cast off wickedness. It's a simple rhythm of the Christian life. So, so though James starts with three commands in verse 19, he starts with that because these commands summarize what he's going to be Opening up for us in the following verses, there's a sense in which we begin our steps of obedience right here in verse 21. If you want to do verse 19, you have to do verse 21 first. That's how you do it. Receive the word with meekness. Cast off rampant wickedness. Put away the impurity that remains in you and receive eagerly the word of God to change you. So Christian, is that the pattern of your life? Is that the regular rhythm of your soul? Are you putting away the rebellious and selfish desires of your flesh? Are you walking in repentance? Are you taking in God's word to nourish your soul? Are you coming to the word of God to be changed? To be more like Christ? Have you gotten to a place in your Christian life where you actually really don't repent at all anymore? Because somehow you've led to yourself to believe that you really don't have any kind of flagrant sins that would need that. What's the pattern of your life? You, you cannot be all that God desires for you unless this is the rhythm of your life. Your life, Christian, cast off, take in. Cast off, take in. We don't outgrow either one of these steps. 
cast off, take in. God, God desires for you to be increasingly, day by day, more like Christ. And listen to me, if you fail at that, you fail. You have failed at what matters most if you don't do that. No matter how many things you accomplish, no matter how many other goals you achieve, no matter how long you've been coming to church, no matter how involved you are in evangelism or ministry, no matter how much theological knowledge you have acquired, if you do not grow in Christ's likeness, you fail. So Christian... Is there progress? Maybe a better question is, are you still progressing? It's easy for us to look back on our life before our conversion and go, much progress has been made. But maybe you've been a Christian for 40 years. Is there progress from five years ago? Are you still progressing? Are you changing? Are you becoming more quick to hear? Are you becoming slower to anger? Are you growing in grace? Or are you getting grumpier? What would your spouse say? What would your kids say? What would your parents say? What would your siblings say? Kids, this is just as much for you as anybody. Your call, if you are a Christian, is to grow up. To grow up and be a mature Christian, what would your family say? What would the people at the coffee shop say? Those people you have those conversations with, what would the people at work say? What would God who sees your heart, God who knows your every thought, what would he say? These are challenging questions for us. May God, though, grant us an ever-increasing desire for his word to know it, to receive it, to obey it. May it produce in us a comprehensive righteousness, a greater love for God, a higher and holier worship of God, a deep love and unity with one another. One that's evident to all who see us. One that brings glory to God. (coughs) May it produce in us Fervor for evangelism. May it produce in us anger towards the right things. And patience towards our own selfish desires. May may, may God's word produce in us all of these things. And, And brothers and sisters, if we will just follow this simple instruction from James, all the benefits, the benefits it will have in our lives and church are immeasurable. Cast off, take in. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. What a gift, what a treasure. Filled with supernatural power. Power to save, power to transform. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that that, that though we fall painfully short in these areas, and as James challenges us, as he holds a mirror up to us to show us what's really in our hearts, Lord, we feel the weight of how short we fall of the standard, but we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that that it is his righteousness, his righteousness accounted to us by which we stand before you. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't waste our lives, 
We wouldn't waste it on vain pursuits, but that we would strive for godliness. We would strive to grow in Christ-likeness. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would run this race and finish this race well. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be a church who are marked by these things, Lord, who, who receive your word with gladness, ready and eager to obey, and who are actively casting off sin and unrighteousness as you transform us by your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us. I pray that you would be glorified through us. We pray, Lord, that we would be a shining beacon, Lord, of your power to save and of your grace and of your kindness and that, that you, would, you would birth in us such a deep love for one another, such a deep unity with one another that we would spur one another on to love and good works, that as iron sharpens iron, we would sharpen one another and that, that Lord, we would uh, spur one another on, cheer one another on as we run this race of faith. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness to us in Christ and we rest in his finished work alone, even as we pray by your spirit that you would continue to convict us and to mold us and to shape us, however painful that may be, into the likeness of Christ. For your glory, for your kingdom's sake, and because we believe your promises to us, we know for our eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen.